the human example, brothers, even with the man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons and daughters of God through faith. For as many of you as are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Hello, welcome to Regeneration. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. We cherish it, and we are so thankful that you've left us your heart. And so, God, we ask for your spirit to be with us this morning, to fill our minds, our hearts, our spirit with you, so that we may glean from your word what you desire us to get, not just for knowledge, not just for conviction, but that we may leave transformed, changed people because we know you better. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, you look at these verses this morning and maybe you're asking yourself, what does this have to say to our world today? And I think uh, verse 22 of our text encapsulates that for us this morning. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. We've all sinned, yet God provided us the scripture, which imprisons everything under sin. It's so important for us to know the scriptures, for us to study, to meditate, to logically reason through the scriptures. And that's why we systematically study the Bible here, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We're not going to skip anything. And so here we are, Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 29, and so far, we've taken a look at Paul's declaration of freedom in the gospel. He wrote about these spies who crept their way into the church to cause division, attempting to undermine the truth of the gospel, the truth of the gospel, which is we are justified by faith in Jesus Christ. And these spies wanted to pollute the gospel with the belief that there was something more than just faith for salvation. And they believed that there were these things that needed to be done to earn a standing with God, but that's not the truth of the gospel. It is by faith in Jesus alone, not by works, but it is what Jesus did for us to give us a right standing before God. And while this group wanted to perform to gain a right standing with God, Paul preached 
There is nothing for you to do. Jesus paid it all. It cost him his life and he did it for you. There's nothing more to do. Now the Bible is pretty contrary toward many of people's beliefs about themselves. The Bible shows that humans are fallen and there isn't anything that we can do to earn a right standing with God. Yet our world and our culture fill our heads with the belief that we can do anything that we want, including getting a right standing with God. And if that's not possible, then God's not existent. Or we'll just rewrite some sort of worldview where we can do that. But that's not biblical. That's not the gospel of Jesus, and that's not the law of God. The law of God never changes. Those are His laws, and whether we believe them or not, or we follow them or not, we are still held accountable to breaking those laws. So God offered us this gracious gift to receive a right standing with Him, and He won't force this gift upon you. He will not bully you into believing it. He has graciously offered His Son, Jesus Christ, to take your place in paying the penalty of sin, which is death. So this is what we've looked at so far in Paul's letter to the Galatian churches. All of that is available in iTunes. The question Paul addresses in our scripture this morning is this. What is the connection between the gospel and the law? And we find the answer to that important theological question in our text this morning, starting in verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. See, the law does not annul, meaning it doesn't cancel, it doesn't invalidate God's promises. And last week we took a look at Genesis chapter 15 when God promised to Abraham and his offspring an inheritance. And God didn't have any condition attached to this gift that he gave to Abraham. God's gift to him was unconditional, it was gracious, it was free. There was nothing Abraham did to earn that gift. It was simply by faith that he received this gift from God. And so Paul draws this human example to the Galatian churches in verse 15 to illustrate that the law can't annul, it can't cancel, it can't invalidate the promises God has already made, which is those justified by faith have been adopted into God's family. And while that faith in God was accounted to Abraham as righteousness, that same promise runs all the way through history and with future generations because God honors his promises. In verse 16, Paul referenced Abraham to remind the readers of this letter about the promises made to Abraham. See, God promised Abraham a land, the land of Canaan. But there's a more significant promise. There's a spiritual promise. A spiritual inheritance that Abraham was to receive and his offspring would receive from God. Now you notice that the word offspring was singular, not plural. It does not say and to offsprings. It does not refer to many, but to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. See, it's only through Jesus Christ. The promise would be fulfilled not through Abraham's offsprings, but only one offspring, Jesus. And by Jesus' death on the cross, would all of God's gracious promises be fulfilled through him. See, Paul was clear about justification by faith in Jesus alone. But there was this lingering question from the people about the law. Because what about the law? 
it's there. We hear all the stuff about grace and we hear all the stuff about faith and Jesus, but the law is there. So what about the law? The law was given to Moses 430 years after Abraham. So doesn't that mean that the law of Moses amended the faith of Abraham? No, it does not mean that. And let me try to explain. You have a will, right? You have a will that you have for your family. If you have a family, you better have a will, all right? So don't leave your spouse with a bunch of uncertainties when you die. And don't leave your children with a bunch of uncertainties if you die sooner than you expect to die. So draw up your will, right? And if you need help with that, I'll be happy to help you if you include me in your will. <laughs> so you have your will and you store it in a safe place, right? You store it in a safe place and you as the person who is the guardian of that will, the trustee of that will, the executor of that will, you can make changes to it whenever you want, as long as you're alive, but the moment you die, that's it. No more changes. Whatever you've set up in your will, that is it. So it is with Abraham's promise. The law appearing 430 years later doesn't cancel the promise made to Abraham. There is no changing Abraham's will. He died. There's no changing it. That's it. This is locked in. Verses 17 and 18. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. The law can't change the covenant, the promise, the will that was already ratified by God. Now back to verse 14. In Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Nothing can change that. Nothing. It is forever promised. It is set. No law, no amendment, no nothing. It was already set. Abraham's dead. There's no changing it. Verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. The law reveals that the real presence of sin is right here. It's not a hypothetical thing. It's not a theoretical thing. Its presence is very real and the severity of sin is very real. And the law reveals that. The consequences of breaking the law are extremely serious. And so Paul goes into the purpose of the law because these Judaizers, this circumcision party, accuse Paul of not following the law. That he disregarded it. That you know he's not taking the law seriously. So that Paul guy, he's not someone to be trusted. And so Paul reminds them, what is the purpose of the law? Think about this, guys. What is the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions. The law was added because people disregarded God and, and God used the law to expose this to them, to expose how people have violated God's law. And the law uncovers who we really are. And so when we evaluate ourselves, we might give ourselves high marks, right? We might think, who we are and what we do and how we live, why we do what we do, that's all acceptable. And maybe it might even be good who we are, what we do, why we do what we do, how we live. And as long as our standards are ours, we can justify 
our own morality, our own ethics, our own man-made laws. We can justify all of that. But, under the standard of the law of God, well, things are different. Because the law of God does not change. While the laws, morals, ethics of man do change. All the time. And the law of God reveals our rebellion, our sinfulness, and we've indeed violated the law of God. The law condemns us and proves we are incapable of righteousness. The law exists to showcase the beauty of God's gracious promise of righteousness and justice. That's what it does. The law is necessary because it shows us that God is just, which is a great thing. We love justice. And the only person who doesn't want justice is the one who's in fact guilty. Right? Because that person wants grace. Which is really great also. But you can't have justice if there is no law. Right? You can't have it both ways. That you want justice but you don't want to be held accountable to the law. It doesn't work that way. It can't work that way. People may argue that they don't want or they don't have to be held accountable to God's laws, that they just want the laws that they deem acceptable and they deem appropriate to humans. Well, who made you God? Who made you God? To determine what's acceptable and what's appropriate. God makes His laws. God is the one that determines His own laws. You and I don't determine His laws. His law exposes who we really are. And perhaps some people don't want that honest reality. There are people who don't want to deal with reality. We know them. Because we see them when they're dealing with their own health, don't we? When people look at their health, people who are afraid of dealing with their disease or their illness, who prefer to ignore it or try to convince themselves that they're okay when in reality, things aren't okay. But you know, if reality isn't faced, it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. That cancer, that disease, that illness, it's still there. The lab results are still not good and your health is still compromised. See, the law of God is real whether you choose to face that reality or not. It is the lab results. But it proves that the cancer, the disease, the illness is eating away at you. And so the law of God shows us reality and the consequences if you don't accept Jesus by faith to intervene, to come in and heal you. That separation from God will be forever, which is hell. That's the definition of hell. That is reality, whether you believe that or not. The lab results are clear. The law of God is clear. Now something about the law. There's no grace or gospel, just as there is no justice, without the law. Because how can there be if there's no counterweight to it? If there is nothing to condemn us of unrighteousness, there would be no need for grace. There would be no need for the gospel. Faith in Jesus is necessary for deliverance from the law because we are guilty. And that needs to be there. That law needs to be there in order to understand that there is a gospel, that there is grace. You can choose to reject the lab results. Sooner or later, the consequences become reality whether you believe them or you don't. The law is our lab results. And I'm telling you your lab results based on the law. We are all sick and we are all dying. 
And the law is clear about our unrighteousness. See, I want to retain my bedside manner. As I tell you this really grim news that you are sick and that you are dying. But the thing is, I still need to tell you that you're sick and that you are dying. You are spiritually dying. And the only hope of your health, your recovery, is faith in Jesus. And I would be a useless pastor to your spiritual health if I lied to you about this. God's law pronounces that you are spiritually dead. And without faith in Jesus to deliver you from this spiritual death, you will be eternally separated from God who created you, who loves you and wants to be with you, but he can't be with you without faith in Jesus because he is holy, because he is just. And the way he provided for you to be with him is through Jesus. God's divine plan, his divine rescue for everlasting life was providing Jesus. Verse 21, is the law then contrary to the promise of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. See, the law can't give life. It cannot give life. The law and the promise by faith in Jesus Christ, they have totally different purposes. The law shows us that we are unrighteous and we need deliverance. We rebel against the law. We violate the law which has imprisoned us. But the promise by faith in Jesus is what sets us free. Totally different purposes. We have been imprisoned because we have broken the law and it exposes our guilt, it condemns us, therefore the law cannot set us free. It imprisons. What delivers us from imprisonment is the promise that we'll be free by faith in Jesus. He sets us free. The Judaizers attempted to change this promise. They came in with the proposition that the law cancels, it invalidates, it, it annuls the promise of God. That is not true. And Paul pointed out that the promise is the same. It cannot be changed. And the real purpose of the law was to show us our unrighteousness. That the law actually proves we need the promise of God through faith because the law can't set us free from sin. It imprisons us. Now, you and I don't realize that we need to be saved until we realize that we're in serious trouble. Right? You just kind of go along in life and you just do the things you do. It's different once you get the lab results and someone tells you something is seriously wrong that's going on. See, things change once you know and you choose to stop living in denial. The law exposes this sinful condition. It doesn't make you better, though. It is just lab results. It can't justify unrighteousness before a holy God. It just shows you're rotten, like you're decomposing. It does not make you better, right? They just show you that you're sick. Then you can look at a way to get deliverance. The law exposes your sin so that you know that you need to look for deliverance, for rescue, for grace. That you need freedom from sin. And that's through Jesus. Now let's take a look at what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 10. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. 
For Christ is the end of the law of righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. We can't fully understand God's grace, the gospel, if we don't understand the condemnation that we face under the law. I hear of people saying things like, oh, you know, we, we just want to develop relationships. We just want to love them and we just want to do this. I agree. I agree. When does the gospel come in, though? What kind of gospel are we preaching? What are we sharing? How are they going to know if they don't hear? And I, I'm concerned for the church because there are pastors of some churches who are more concerned with preserving the worth and the image of those people they're coming in contact with rather than telling them the truth of their lab results. See, I am an advocate of bedside manner. I don't want to just blast in there and say, you're dying! Say goodbye to your family! We need to be tactful in our preaching, in our evangelism, but, but you know, we have to be honest. I mean, what good are you as a healer, as a health practitioner, if you can't tell people the truth? Yeah, he'll be dead in five days, but he won't know until then. We can't tell people that they're spiritually fine when they're not. See, the law is harsh. The lab results are harsh. It's telling the truth. It imprisons and it reveals to us our unrighteousness. Verse 23. Now, before faith came... We were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. In other words, we were put under a witness protection program. Right? We were held in protective custody. Paul gave us this picture of what captivity looks like. And so he drew this picture of prison in verse 23. And then in verse 24, he used this word, guardian that Paul uses to further illustrate his point. Because back in that context, a guardian was referring to a tutor, this guide that these boys had in the Greek and the Roman culture. See, these boys had a guardian. And this guardian was a trusted servant of the family. 
And so this family actually had means to provide a guardian to their boys. And so they would entrust this guardian, the family entrusted this guardian to bring these boys up in etiquette, in uh, morality, in character, and how to live their life in this respected, reputable family. And so the boys could not even step out of the house without their guardians until they reached manhood, until they reached adulthood. And so Paul gave us this picture of the law putting us into protective custody and that it was meant to tutor us in our formation, in our character formation, to know whose family we belong to. Because that's what the guardian's charge was. You belong to this family and this is how you conduct your life. And so that's what he was drawing these pictures of. And one of the things that these two illustrations have in common is that they're temporary. Look at verse 23. Imprisoned until the coming of faith. And then verse 24. The law was our guardian until Christ came. See, the law was meant to be temporary. It was meant to be a temporary protector, a temporary guardian. It was given to bless us, to preserve us, to teach us. It's just like any child that's grown up in a house that the parents are there to protect the child and raise the child and to help them to develop into people of society. See, it wasn't meant to curse us. It was not meant to harm us. The purpose of the law was to put us in protective custody until faith would be revealed to us and to put a guardian in our life to tutor us and to watch over us until Jesus came to reclaim us into his family. And once we came into faith, we no longer needed the guardian. Verse 25, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. See, the Gentile boys would no longer need a guardian once they were deemed to be men. When they became mature adults who learned what they needed to live their lives, they understood who they were, they understood how they were to live because they belong to this family and this is how we do things. See, their lives were transformed. And that's what faith does for us. We don't depend on the law for our salvation. We don't depend on it for character formation because it can't give that to us. It's faith that does that. And there's a need to be transformed from law to faith. The law can't justify us from our sins, only faith in Jesus. And that is when we are released from protective custody. When you understand that, you're done. Go. You're like grasshopper, right? You got the thing, you set it down, you're out. And, and when we come to faith in Jesus, and you know who you are, that's when you're free from the law. Verse 26, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. See, there's this false belief that all people are children of God. Don't you hear it all the time? I'm a child of God, I'm a child of God. Yes, God created all people. Yes, he is the king of all people. But that does not make him your father. It just makes him your creator and your king, but he's not your dad. He is not everyone's father. He's the father of those who are in Christ Jesus. Only in Christ Jesus are you adopted into his family. See, it's not a birthright. Just because you were created by him doesn't mean that you get it. So the question to ask yourself is, have I been adopted into God's family? 
Right? You aren't born into it, and you can't earn your way into it. It is received by faith in Jesus, providing that to you because of a promise. Not because of something you did. Verse 27, For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. Now, do you see this picture of baptism? It's not the external act of baptism that shows you have put on Christ. Right? It's not works. It is by faith in what happened to you spiritually, inwardly, and the external act of baptism is an expression of what has already happened inside. Verse 28, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. See, there is no racial, social, or sexual distinction in Christ Jesus. So are we raceless? Are we classless? Are we sexless? No. No, I mean, no, right? It doesn't mean that they don't exist. It means that they don't matter. It doesn't matter. What matters is that you have come to faith in Jesus Christ, who died for you on the cross to set you free from sin. And when you accept that gift of faith in Jesus, you are adopted into his family. It doesn't matter your color. doesn't matter what class. doesn't matter your gender. It's about a relationship with Jesus. It's not about how or who you identify yourself with outside of Jesus. It's not about what you do to gain a right standing with God. It's only by faith. Verse 29, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Are any of you struggling with knowing who you are? Maybe you have an identity crisis. And I just want to encourage you that in Jesus Christ, you are instantly given significance because you've become a child of God, you've become an heir. And you can live in right standing with God and you can live in right standing with others. Right? You can forgive the ones who have wronged you. You can love your enemies. You can do good to those who hate you. You can bless those who curse you. You can pray for those who abuse you. You can give to those who have nothing to give to you in return. And you have a humongous family that spans time because it's all the saints of old too. Like I can't wait to meet Paul. I know he's going to school me on something, but I can't wait to meet him. And I can't wait to meet Peter and just say, thank you so much because you made so many mistakes and yet you're still here. Like, that's so awesome. And you can go anywhere in the world and meet brothers and sisters in Christ. Anywhere. All over the planet. You can go and you can say, I'm going to see you later. You're a brother. And... I don't think I like you too much, but I have so many others to like. And you are a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ. If you ever doubt who you are, if you ever have an identity crisis, remind yourself you are an heir according to promise that can never be changed. It can't be changed. You are part of God's family and your heavenly father loves you deeply. He wants you home with him. You may be going through some challenging times. And you will be going through some challenging times in the future. But it's all temporary. Let me close with this. 2 Corinthians, starting in chapter 4, verse 13. And I'm going to read through chapter 5, verse 7. And we'll just close with this. And really try to absorb this. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus 
and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Everlasting freedom can be only found by faith in Jesus. Everlasting salvation can only be found by grace through faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for providing us the law. The law which is harsh. The law which is brutally honest. But through that, Lord, we see the beauty of your grace. We see the beauty of your provision of a Savior in your Son, Jesus. We see your provision of justice. And without it, Lord, those things cannot exist. Father, thank you for your infinite wisdom. Thank you for your infinite love. In Jesus' name, amen.